guys. Grab your Bibles if you would. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. If you forgot yours, that's completely cool. We've got them tucked into the pews in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, please take that, keep it, and read it. We would love for that to be just a little gift that we can hook you guys up with today. So we are going to be in Acts chapter 2, looking at the first 13 or so verses. And here's what we see in verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost, which was the harvest... Arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That little paragraph. In the Bible, is, it's a benchmark, it's a bookmark, it's a, a highlighted section of the Bible basically saying things will never be the same again. For, from Acts chapter 2, verse 5 and following, things are never going to be the same again. And as I was reading through that passage and writing on it and thinking about it, it was one of the handful that I wish we had video of. Like, wouldn't you have loved to have actually, like, um, what's the, uh, the video of Jesus, and it's real popular right now, Jimmy loves, Chosen, thank you, Jimmy, sorry. Uh, the, the Chosen does a phenomenal job, but if we could get 4K high-def audio of different places in Scripture, this would be on my short list. What does it look like when this happens? I would probably also pick when Elisha gets made fun of for being bald. Y'all remember this? There are these teenagers. I love this because I did youth ministry for a long time. And whenever teenagers like were getting out of line, I was like, let me just show you how the Bible deals with teenagers, right? These kids are making fun of uh, Elisha, God's prophet, for being bald. And he calls out to the wilderness and female bears come and beat up all of the teenagers. If you're, if you're not reading your Old Testament, you're missing out on some really great stories that don't make the coloring sheets. I want to see that. And when I, I read this passage, I want pictures of it. Uh, a couple of nights ago, our family got caught up looking through photo albums. It wasn't planned. We weren't being intentional parents. I don't even know exactly. I, I do know how it happened. We were reading this missionary story together as a family. And uh, because we're a pastor's family and we do it the right way, right? Like, so... All of that guilt if you're not reading the Bible to your kids. We were that night reading and we were talking about missions and Karen Ann and I, when we were pregnant with Ella, spent time in Mexico and they wanted to see the pictures. So we show pictures and then I say, and Ellis was there too in mommy's tummy. Well, then they want to see Ellis's baby pictures. Well, you can't look at Ellis's without looking at that. You can't look at that without looking at Ames. You can't look at Ames without looking at Tiggy's. Tiggy has a lot of stuff, all right? And, and so, you know, like with each passing kid, technology gets better and you're putting stuff in the cloud and your last kid just has way more stuff than your first kid does and they have to deal with and so we're looking at all of these pictures and I'm thinking about these texts and I'm realizing that what we're going to read this morning is like opening the photo album of the church and going back to being in the hospital on the day when the church is born. That's what we're going to do. And when you look back on old pictures, a few things happen. Things that felt massive at the time begin to shrink down. 
You see your kid with that passy? You remember losing that passy that one time you were on that trip and you're like, I'm never gonna make it through this night. I'm just absolutely not. I'm gonna jump out of the car before we get there because of what's happening in the back. You could look back and see that t-shirt that you forgot you had, but that used to be your t-shirt because you looked so good in it. And so if you were gonna go out, it was gonna be that t-shirt or that hat and things just that seemed so big and so important begin to shrink down. You see how faithful God has been in places where he has shown up and your current crisis begins to shrink down a little bit as well. And then the fun of watching people age, watching hair move backwards here and then come here. One of my favorite pictures was when my beard had lots of patches in it. And I was like, oh, well, okay, I'll take that aging any day of the week. But then you also look and you realize you've lost people along the way. Friendships that were close that are no longer close anymore. People who have just completely walked away. Moms, dads, grandmas, grandfathers. People that you have lost and children that you have added. And all of these things as you're flipping through gives you this sense of depth and nostalgia and thoughtfulness And I think that's exactly what's supposed to happen when we read through this text. The church is about to be born. You're sitting on pews of a church that was born before ours was. In about 90 minutes, Pastor Willie across the street is going to meet with his church. In other time zones, this is happening. People are waking up to go to church or they're finishing up and they're heading home all across the globe for the past 2,000 plus years in this regular cycle because of the 12 or 13 verses we're going to look at today. And if the Bible was this baby book, then what you have is you have like the Old Testament law when you see vows being made. You've got the prophets and you you find these little snippets of God's love letters that are tucked in. The gospels would be the ultrasounds, right? Like something's coming, it's being formed, but it's not quite there yet. But when we finally get to Acts, you have that picture of of the delivery room. You have, and there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of sights, there's a lot of sound. You just don't forget that moment. This text offers a great reset for believers and a fresh start for those of you who are contemplating pursuing Jesus with your entire life. And and I just want to throw up a few questions and leave them in front of you and, and you decide which one of these hits home the most. Are there things in life that have more pull or gravity than they should? Things that today you know you'll look back on and will realize this is not the biggest thing in the world, but today it feels like it. Has God been faithful to you in dark times and yet you feel cold, callous, or common toward him? How have you grown and changed and has that led you to thank God for the gift of the Holy Spirit and his sanctification? Can you look back on where you were at 10 or at 20 or 30 or 40 and where you are today And is it just common, like, well, I go to church and I do the thing and I live the life and I I try to act a certain way. Has it become common? Have you become cold towards God? Have you just decided in this area of my life or in this place or in this relationship, it's just not something where the Holy Spirit has access or maybe even God cares about? Are there parts of your world where you're acting like the center 
of your universe. These little verses that we are going to look at is going to address every one of these. And here's the reality. Every one of us is human. Every one of us is broken. Every one of us is prone to sin. So this is true of us at times. But which one hits home to you? Let me pray for us. Well, Father, as we, as we dig in and open up your word, as we prepare, uh, Father, to, to, to read and think and contemplate, my great desire is that you would meet with us in a powerful way. The way that we read about that, that nature would be shook. Father, there may be some of us who have vestiges of sin that are as strong and thick as the greatest trees in this world. Things that we think cannot bend, cannot break, cannot be torn down, but your word would say the opposite. There may be some in this room that need to be met by you in a loving, gentle, tender kindness, which we see is true of you as well. And Father, if you would just help us be put in the right place, so that we could be ministered to by your spirit and respond accordingly, draw people nearer to Christ and to the cross as we simply read through this. And Father, may we shrink down in our own worlds to appropriate size. And remember that we are never the thing. We are a part of some things. And you, God, have invited us to be a part of the great mission that will be celebrated for all eternity. Make us excited about that reality. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's take a look. I'm gonna read through the whole text. This is verses one through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, that may seem like a throwaway verse. Okay, Pentecost is here. That's uh, 50 days after Passover. Passover is sort of a somber holiday. Pentecost is when they're celebrating the harvest. And what we're about to see is they're not just celebrating a harvest of food, but just as God has said, look, I need workers to go into the harvest because it is plentiful. God is about to rescue not 10 people or a hundred people from their sins, but thousands upon thousands of people from their sins. There's going to be a harvest, not of food, but of souls and hearts that are turned to God. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound. Now, there's an entire sermon that we could do just on this first verse and the beginning of the second. And it has everything to do with obedience. Two weeks ago, we talked about waiting and how important waiting was. Well, you can wait in a godly way or you can wait in a really ungodly, snarky, difficult, dark kind of way. And then last week we talked about how to make decisions, which is much more my speed and what I would prefer. But we can make decisions in very self-oriented ways or in ways that glorify God. But here's the thing. Whether you're waiting or in the process of making a decision, if you aren't obedient in the waiting, if you aren't obedient to God in the decision, and guys, this happens to us all the time. We feel the Lord tell us, hey, I want you to go and talk to this person. I want you to get involved in this ministry. I want you to show up here, be there, do this, lead your family like this, get in the scriptures, pray more, all of these things. We feel these leadings from the Spirit of God and, and we have this moment where we're like, okay, I'm going to take a step, I'm going to do this thing. But it all comes down to obedience. Consider this. If these 12 guys and a handful of women that Jesus said, stay here, did not. If they were a little lax with the word of God. If they were just a little relaxed 
on what God had called them to, they absolutely miss this incredible thing that God is doing. And suddenly, without warning, they had to be there obediently. There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Later in the book of Acts, we're going to talk about should we be speaking in tongues? Should we not be speaking in tongues? Pentecostal churches, that's a very big thing as to whether or not salvation has occurred in many of them, not all of them. Other churches would say that, is, uh, that has absolutely ceased. We're not going to hit that today. That's coming up later in the book of Acts. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under God, which means not only was this handful of people being obedient to God, but these other folks that had no warning are being obedient as well. They're in Jerusalem for Passover. They're in Jerusalem for Pentecost, as they were supposed to be. Verse 6. And at this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed. They were astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes. And I know a pastor, and he was talking about this particular passage. And when he got to this, like usually you read the words and it's either fun or it's scary, right? Like if you're reading out loud, I remember this from, uh, from Sunday school, the, uh, our Sunday school, Mr. Mack, he would have us read little sections of scripture out loud during Sunday school. You wanted the scripture that said they were bewildered because each one was hearing. What scripture you didn't want to read out loud was uh, Parthians and Medes and Cretans and all of these other kind of words that you're just like <laughs> and you're like I'm just as much of a Christian as you I just got the hard verse so back off a little bit but this, this pastor that I know he, he was reading through this with a, a, another, uh, another person they weren't a believer at the time and he got to verse 9 Parthians and Medes. We're, we're not going to think a ton of these words. But the guy that he was sitting with could trace his national heritage all the way back to the Medes. And he didn't know Jesus. He wasn't plugged into the church. He didn't know the great narrative of why God sent his son. But that one little word, the Medes, caused him to realize something. God cares about me. He has cared about me. He has a plan for me. He has had a plan for me. And this one little verse caused him to draw near to the Lord. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. What's the Bible saying? Every known ethnicity and language is now, because they hear this loud, weird sound, they're going to see what's happening. We do this all the time. Walking through the mall, walking through a crowded area, and you hear a loud sound, you kind of peek in, you kind of turn. But this wasn't the kind of sound where they thought something destructive was necessarily happening because they draw near. They get closer and closer to see what's happening. But the Bible wants you to know it's not just people from different nations. It's people from different religious backgrounds. Verse 11, 
both Jews and proselytes. Proselytes would have been people who were not born ethnically Jewish, but they had, somewhere along in their lives, they had become devout to Yahweh, to the God that the Jews worshipped, who Jesus is pointing to, God the Father. Verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed is my favorite part. So you got this group of people, hyper diverse. They don't talk like each other. They don't look like each other. A lot of folks, uh, scholars look back at this passage and they say, this is the inverse of the Tower of Babel. Remember the story of the Tower of Babel? God's like, go and scatter and fill the earth. That's what I've created you for. And they're like, nah, it's nice here. And they're like, we're just going to build this tower. It was probably a ziggurat. You remember those like little stepping stone ones? We're going to get real close to to heaven. We're going to make a name for ourselves is what it says in scripture. And God says, nope, not going to happen. That's not what I created you for. I certainly didn't create you to worship yourselves. And so he changes their languages and scatters them out. Well, here, what we see is as the spirit of God is coming, the inverse is happening. All these different nations, all these different tongues are being drawn near for one message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that every one of us has hope in him only and in nothing else. But here's what they say. If you ever feel like the Bible doesn't get humanity, Acts chapter 2 verse 13. They were all amazed saying to one another, what does this mean? Verse 13, but others mocking said they are filled with new wine. I love that verse. I love that verse because the Bible is not hyper-sterile. It, it, it meets us in our grittiness and our brokenness. There are people who are like, God is doing a wonder. And in the same moment, somebody's like, nah, they just brought the cheap beer and you guys have been hitting it too hard. That's what the Bible's saying. When it says new wine, it's not talking about in this beautiful bottle. Huh, it's got the little wire on the top. It's going to be great. no. He's saying they bought the cheap stuff. That's what new wine was. Old wine's expensive. New wine is cheap. They're basically saying these guys grabbed too much Natty Light. And and later on, Peter actually addresses this. And you know how he addresses it? He says, it's too early. Like, nobody's drinking this early in the day. He answers that question. Is that not humanity? God begins to do something, and some people are caught up. And they're like, how great is God? And the moment our faith begins to grow, the moment we see God doing something and we want to connect ourselves with it, there's a voice somewhere saying, that's not real, man. That's not true. That's not fake. You don't want to connect your life to this thing. Nah, it's just a bunch of new wine. But what is happening here is 100% a miracle. A miracle. Now, I would be willing to bet that I love this. We talk about it, and then here we go. See, kiddo, we're all praying for you now. It just happened. (laughs) Jimmy made us. We love you. Um, This miracle, whenever I see miracles in the New Testament, it makes me wish we had more of them today. I'm not scared as a pastor to say that. I, I, I don't think it... It, should, it causes me to question my faith. I don't think it should make you question your faith to say, I just kind of want to see a miracle, right? God has no less power. He has no less care. He has no less love. Let's see something catch on fire. 
Uh, in this moment, I'd be fine with it, right? This is the, the fire here, by the way, was not an actual fire. It's just the best way they could describe it. It may have looked like an open mouth or a tongue, obviously. And so the, the biblical writer, Luke, in this case, who wrote the book of Acts, he's like, man, how am I gonna connect this to people so that those who aren't here can understand what's happening? Man, I would love to see a miracle, but as, as I continued to grow and understand scripture, I realized most of the reasons I wanna see a miracle have nothing to do with the reason God sends miracles in the first place. <gasps> Every time, we see Jesus show up to do a miracle, there's more than one thing happening. And honestly, it's rarely for what people want the miracle for. Jesus takes this little kid's lunch, some bread and some fish, and he's like, oh, what do we got? About 8,000 people, this'll do. Everybody has seen that coloring sheet. It's why it's not in my top like three. I wanna see Elisha and the bears, right? But, but he takes this bread and he takes this fish, and he just starts tearing it up. I don't even know how you tear up a fish that way. Old school, it still had the bones in it. And he's just tearing it up and he's giving it to his disciples and they're going and they're passing it. And it covers 10 people and then 100 and then 1,000 and then 5,000 that are recorded and then more thousands that are not recorded. And Jesus speaks about what happened just a few moments later when somebody else shows up. All right, hey, can you do that bread fish thing again? It'd be great if I didn't have to go to work today. I'm, I'm not speaking a quote, but that's basically what happens. And Jesus looks at him and he says, man, you're just here because you had your fill of the loaves and your fill of the fish. What's Jesus saying? It's not what the miracle is about. That's never what the miracle was about. When God does miracles, it's to display the compassion of Jesus. Why is he healing the lame? To show compassion. Why is he healing the blind? To show compassion. Why is he going to those who have lost loved ones, who have nothing left at the fringes of society, at the fringes of hope, and stepping in? Why does Jesus do that? To say miracles exist to show you that God is compassionate. But not only that, it's to show us the position that Jesus has. It wasn't just stuff like that. It was stuff that we're uncomfortable with, like people being possessed by demons, this guy named Legion who just hangs out on the countryside. He was terrorizing the city, so they started chaining him up. But then he started breaking the chains. So they chain him up again, and they send him out to the wilderness. And Jesus steps into that darkness. And do you know what the Bible records? It doesn't record everything that Jesus says. We get a snippet of what this guy says when he goes back. But do you know what it covers? It covers the demons looking at Jesus and saying, what are you doing here, Holy One, Son of God? Why does the Bible record that? Because the miracles of Christ not only show us the compassion of Christ, they show us his position. That while he is coming meek and mild as a child in a manger, he is also the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That his word can cause a little calf to leap and a deer that is unseen to give birth and it can rip trees from their foundations and it can move mountains and bring stars into being. That's the God that we serve. And when miracles happen, we see that. And then finally, we see something else. We see compassion. We see the kingship of Christ. And then we see that that kingdom will come. He brings it up all the time. When I'm breaking up this food, you're filling your stomach. But what I want you to realize is there's going to be a day where we do not have to toil for it. A day that is filled with banquet. 
When somebody who is lame or blind or broken is healed, he doesn't just leave them there. He says, there's going to be a place in my kingdom where there is no pain, there is no suffering, and there are no more tears, where cancer is eradicated and every other thing that sin has brought. When miracles exist, we see the compassion of Christ, the kingship of Christ, and the coming kingdom of Jesus. And guess what you see in this text? You see people who may not have known that God cared that much about them. The disciples a week ago looked at Jesus and said, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it going to be about Israel? Are we going to wave our flag and be the big deal in the world? And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, my compassion, the Holy Spirit displays, my compassion is for the Cretan and for the Parthian and for the Roman and for the ones living in Cyrene. And for the Americans 2,000 years later who are going to have so many distractions in their world that they need to be reminded of my love. Something that we've seen before is happening here. There are two things. We see this wind and we see this fire. You see that in verse 2 and in verse 3. We've seen this in the Bible before. I'm not going to make you turn there, but I do want to throw this up for you. This idea of a wind, a cloud, nature, and fire, God uses all the time. Exodus 13, 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. Now look, the folks who are there, when wind comes through and begins to shake this house, and a fire comes down, they would have thought of this passage. They would have said, this has to be the presence of God because when we were led out of Egypt, when we were led out of slavery, as the Holy Spirit is now getting ready to lead people out of the slavery of their sin, what are we led by? We're led by the Spirit of God that we have seen in this cloud and in this fire, but it doesn't stop there. In Exodus 40, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it. By night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So first they're walking and then all of a sudden they get a place to worship, a tabernacle. It's similar to this, but it's a big tent. And what is present? The spirit of God and fire. Well, what happens when they actually stop moving, like our church has been able to, and they get two by fours? Well, we see that in Ezekiel 43 too. And behold, the glory of the Lord, uh, excuse me, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east and the sound of his coming. Same thing. Was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. Verse four, as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, verse seven, and he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of my people. Every time the people of God are moving, whether they're walking out of Egypt in the wilderness before the promised land or building a temple, God shows up. And he shows up in this nature-bending and breaking way. We've seen this before. And what is God showing? In fact, uh, Sean, I'm gonna get your help with this. Go back to Exodus 13, 21. Exodus 13, 21. This was the first one I read you. Check this out. When the, when the Spirit comes in Acts 2, it says everyone gathered together, right? And 
before he came, they were gathered together in the upper room. Look at what happens in the Old Testament. And the Lord went before them by day. He goes before them. Whenever we see this happen, God is doing it in a group of people that are drawn together. We see it in Exodus 40. I already read it to you. It says, uh, in the sight of all, go to uh, Exodus 40, 38 for me. God is doing this, the cloud and the fire in the sight of all the house of Israel. I just untied my shoe. I even tied it when Jimmy was talking because I was afraid it was going to happen and I got a double knot and now I'm not going to be able to, I'm preaching through it. Go to the next verse. Ezekiel 43, go to verse 7. And where is God going to dwell? In the, oh, missed it. In the midst of my people. Guys, never, ever, 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 ever minimize the value of believers gathering together. One of the worst things that has happened in America, because it is an American issue, is this idea of my personal faith with Jesus Christ where I do not need the church, I don't need other believers, I do not need a community. It is one of the most horrible, evil, toxic, unrealistic, will set you up for defeat attempts to pursue Christianity and Christ. It will not work. North magnet to north magnet. It is going to repel you from God because it's not what you were created for. The first thing in all creation that God says is not good is a guy standing there by himself. Everything's good. It's great. It's great. Trees are great and birds are great and fish are great and water's great and stars are great. And Adam was made in my own image, God says. That's not good because he's alone. God is even there with him. Can he, is he really alone? God's with him. Sin hasn't even entered the world. How close is Adam to God before sin has even happened? And yet God says it's not good enough. We were meant to be drawn together. All of these little passages would have been examples to the people of God, the devout Jews that have gathered for this in Acts chapter two, the disciples, they would have looked back at Ezekiel, they would have looked back at Exodus and they would have said, isn't God good? Why would we be surprised that he's being good now? Is your heart cold or callous to the previous goodness of God? Has God's faithfulness to you become common is this normal? Eh, I'm going to wake up, throw some clothes on my kids, grab a cup of coffee, and walk in. On the one hand, the church should be the easiest place to walk into. It's the easiest place because the Bible literally says, come as you are, but don't remain that way. Find Christ. Be sought by him. Be open to him changing your life. Those doors should be two of the easiest doors to walk through. They should also be two of the hardest. Because if we think we're going to fake it and put on our proverbial makeup and polo, we are going to miss the Spirit of God. Just showing up common and casual. So I'm not putting cushions on the seat. That's not true. We'll get them. Where do we see today that God regularly puts on display that God cares, that he wants to be known, and that his kingdom is coming? Where do you see that? Where should you see that?
It is not in your quiet time, though that may happen. It is not driving down the street with worship music playing, though that might happen. When Jesus shows up and he does miracles, like the miracle that we're reading about, he's showing that God cares. He's showing that God wants to be known. The demons know who he is, and that is recorded on purpose in Scripture, and that God's kingdom is coming. Where do we or should we regularly see that? The church. The church. And you could look at me and you could say, well, you're a pastor. Of course you think that way. You're paid to think that way. Uh, a buddy of mine, um, a, couple of, a couple of years ago, went through the most difficult season with the church he's ever had. His name's Jeff. Um, we see each other every summer. Jeff was a pastor of a young church when he was in his 20s. He led that church. I'm looking at my wife, I don't know, 10 years, 12 years, something like that. Do we know? 15 years. So from his early 20s, he was a very young pastor into his mid to late 30s. He led this church very well. Church was, it, it did great. People were being baptized, falling in love with the Lord, connecting with one another. They were doing it right. And then their church, about two or three years ago, my wife hates it when I get, get dates wrong. About two or three years ago, went through a, sort of a racial turn, turnover. And Jeff's just preaching the gospel. He's just preaching like, this is a God who draws all nations together. And somewhere along the way, somebody got offended, upset, leadership got offended, upset, and it led to them asking him to step down from the church that he had basically raised since it was a baby. And, and we've watched him summer after summer. How am I doing so far in my story? Accurate? My wife on the way home, she's like, that wasn't right. Dad was seven, he was not four. And I'm like, I don't care, I'm talking about Jesus. I'm talking about and we've watched over the past two or three years as Jeff has had to wrestle with when the church hurts you like to the deepest, hardest places hurts you. What do you do? Because we all want to do one of a couple of things. We just want to throw our hands up in the air and say, you know what? I don't need the church. I can follow Jesus on my own. Not the way God calls you to. You can't. And if Midtree isn't the church for you, I will help you find a church that is more suited for you. Sometimes we just say, okay, I'll show up, but I'm not really going to get involved. Now, I'll show up on Sunday, but small groups, not going to happen. People hurt people. I know it. I've seen it. One guy on a stage is not going to be as likely to hurt me as if we sit down around a kitchen table. And his wife said something to me. I think I have this quote. I like how I put the end of it. My friend Jeff's wife, Natalie. Jeff, by the way, now is uh, the head of Acts 29 assessment. He assesses all of the pastors coming into the Acts 29 network, hundreds of them. If you ever listen to the Acts 29 podcast, he's the voice that you hear. He loves the church, has fallen in love with it, but his wife was saying this to us, no one can hurt you like the church and no one can love you like the church. I remember I was, I was teaching the youth group one year about love and so I was talking about my wife and I was telling them one of the ways my wife can know that she loves me to the deepest degree is am I the one who can hurt her to the deepest degree? 
The, the, the deeper that we are in our relationships, the more vulnerability we have, the more transparency and honesty we have, the more we open ourselves up for deep pain. And I'm just telling you, you can live your life in this little church is good, but not too close because they're going to hurt me. Or you can just let the Holy Spirit open your soul up. And I'll be honest with you, you're going to get hurt. You're going to be offended. People are going to say things they shouldn't because everybody is still sort of a dummy. Honestly, no one has it figured out. If you had it figured out, Jesus would have pulled you up there by now. He's got you here for a reason. It's because you're not finished and he's not finished doing stuff through you. But I, I, I promise you this as well. If you'll be willing to walk through the deepest, darkest, most frustrating, anger-bringing realities of other sinful people sitting together looking nice on a Sunday, but you've got something against them and they've got something against you. And instead of just sweeping it under the rug saying, I love Jesus and you love Jesus and I only have hope in the blood of Christ and you only have hope in the blood of Christ and one day we're going to be smashed together for eternity. So why not figure it out now? You will find more hope and love and joy and peace than you ever thought possible. The church itself is a miracle. We ran out of these books last week. This book does such a phenomenal job of talking about how different people with different backgrounds, brokenness and differences are the reason the church is beautiful. So I bought some more and they're sitting on the table as you go out on your left, please, Take it. You reading this is only going to make Midtree a more beautiful example of the church God is calling us to be. They've seen this before. They've seen the fire. But there's something that they have not seen before. Acts 2, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation. Verse 6. The multitude comes together. They're hearing it in their own language. In verse 7. Aren't these guys all from Galilee? Now, these were all Jews who had gathered together. So to, in my best effort of understanding, they all spoke Hebrew, but they all didn't only speak Hebrew. They had other native tongues. This message could have just been given in the tongue that they all had in common. English for us, right? You go to Spain. It's cool. It's going to... Go to the airport, still going to have stuff in English. Going to France, you'll be all right. How about Zimbabwe? Not a problem because our ethnocentric selves, we get English just about everywhere we go. And if not, you're just like Google Translate that action, right? Because I've got it in my back pocket here. God is intentionally going to the trouble to say, I care you enough to speak in a language you fully understand. (laughs) This would mean, there were 12 guys who were speaking. This would mean that Simon the Zealot, who had hated Matthew the tax collector, were speaking in different languages the same message so that the people God was calling to himself could hear it. That is beautiful. When a guy who literally would have killed the other guy a zealot for the people of Israel, a betrayer of the people of Israel. Look each other in the eye and say, tell them about Jesus. And then one of them starts speaking Roman and the other one starts speaking Cyrenian. It's insane and it's beautiful. And God meets them exactly where they are. But if you go back in verse three, there is something we have not seen before. We've seen a fire. Man, have we seen a fire. We saw it when they walked. We saw it over the temple. We saw it over the tabernacle. 
But now the fire comes down and it does something we haven't seen. It divides. And have you thought about this? There could have just been one pillar of fire in the room. Everybody would have still been amazed. Everybody would have been like, well, that's a little bit different, right? No. This fire comes down and it rests on top of them. When God showed up to Abraham in a flaming pot and walked through, Abraham was the voice of God to his people. When God shows up to Moses in a burning bush, Moses becomes the voice of God to the people. When a priest would offer a burnt sacrifice, that priest was the voice of God to his people. But now, all of a sudden, there's not one voice of God to all the people. All of the people who are pursuing God become the voice of God. And he's not just, it's not like the Holy Spirit is just there. It is resting on top of them. They're not witnesses of this cool thing. They have become part of the story. And this radical shift as the gospel goes to all nations becomes a radical shift where one guy is not supposed to be the guy who tells of the good things that God has done. That's your job too. Now, I pounded on America a little bit for our individualism. One of the things that has come from that is this celebratorizing, I don't know if that's a word, making celebrities of pastors, right? And now it's even easier because I can listen to his podcast and I can watch his video. But I'll go with Matt Chandler because I love the guy. Go with John Piper. Love the guy. There is some pastor in no-name rural Mississippi who is as faithful in preaching the text as they are. And in heaven, I highly doubt that one is going to be celebrated over the other. I'll tell you what's going to be celebrated. How faithful to the Bible were you? How honest to those that God brought are you? Do you hold any punches or do you just tell people the truth and hope that the Holy Spirit will change them? Because one of the most outdated realities of the American church is this idea. The one guy who stands up and it's Will's job at Midtree and it's Tommy's job at Cornerstone and it's Steve's job at Bethesda and it's Willie's job across the street. Here's what the Bible is saying. Not 10 years ago or 100 years ago, but on the first picture that was taken at the birth of the church, you, Christian, are to be the mouthpiece of God. What are we supposed to do about that? We've got three uniques at Midtree Church, uh, and, and this is kind of how we go through them. Solid theology and warm community, we aim for that. But it's two and three that push against American culture, in my opinion, in the most beautiful of ways. Members that shepherd one another through the delights and difficulties of life. It's you watching someone struggle off to the side and not walking by. It's stepping into the awkward. It's noticing the difficulty and the brokenness and drawing closer to it rather than walking away because somebody else is more qualified. Somebody else has a counseling degree. Somebody else knows their Bible better. It is so easy to say, can I pray for you? Do you need to talk? Can I tell you what God's been doing in my life lately? Eight-year-olds can do that. And sometimes I think eight-year-olds do it more. The third thing, a family where everyone has a place and pitches in. This 
text is about saying you should have a role in the place where you worship. You should. It it isn't to be a show or consumeristic. You should be able to click in and find a place. And if you're like, Will, I can't do anything. We had a guy named Stephen who worked at Crosspoint and we asked him to cut cut out stuff for kids ministry one time and we never asked him to do it again. I have never seen an adult person use scissors so poorly. But do you know what was so beautiful about that? I was able to look at Stephen and say, sort of the Thomas Edison approach, we have found one way for you not to serve the Lord. (laughs) Isn't that great? You never have to use scissors again. Now let's try a hole puncher and see how you do, all right? We want to be a place where everyone has a role and it's not because we like have this volunteer mentality. No, it's because it's biblical. So if you've been coming and you're like, man, I do want to get involved. How am I supposed to get involved? All you need to do is grab me, one of the staffers, Tiffany, and say, give me a job to do. And guess what we're completely okay with? You botching it. Where's Chris Edwards? Hey, Chris Edwards, will you do the announcements? The worst announcements we have ever had. They were horrible. I was like, people are not getting saved this Sunday. It's just not going to happen. Remember I talked about the highs and the lows? I'm assuming that was a low Sunday for you. Okay, this moment might be a low moment for you. I'm going to fix that. I'm not lying to you when I tell you if you open yourself up for the valley, you'll find the mountain. What's beautiful about that was that it took a minute, about two years later, he said, hey, I'd like to do it again. Why? You did so poorly at it. Because I believe that God grows us and sanctifies us and changes us. I want to be a part of what is doing. And I'm not such a big part of my universe that I need to be great at everything that I do. What if I can just be one of the voices in the chorus of how great God is? Those of you who don't sing well, I love you. Every time I sing in the back, the people in front of me look back for a second. And I know you do it. I see it happen. All right? But I refuse not to set this example that I think the Bible calls us to. The Bible never says sing well. It says make a joyful noise. Some of you are noisy. That's all right. But what we find in this passage, Luke 19.10. Stokes, you can go ahead and come on up. Luke 19.10 says this. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Seek and save. Every one of us who has any bit of Bible or church in us will say, for the Son of Man, Jesus came to save the lost. But do you remember the part where he seeks them? Do you realize the part that in this text, the Holy Spirit is seeking people? He's literally residing on folks so that they can seek other folks in their own language. If you're a Christian and you know that you are only a Christian because Christ has saved you, here's my question for you. Is Jesus just a saving Savior or is he a seeking Savior too? And if he's just as much of a seeking Savior which is how you became a Christian in the first place, how is your seeking looking? Because here is how the Bible sees you. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race. This happens after the Holy Spirit comes. You're a royal 
priesthood after the flames drop. A holy nation after God gathers these people together. A people for his own possession, comma, not period. Man, that's an encouraging verse if you just stop right there. But why? Why, Christian, are you these things? Why are you a chosen race? Why does he call you a priest? he wants you to speak and share why does he call you a holy nation a people of his own possession a God who loves and chooses so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light Christian that is why you exist and if you are not believing That is what Christ is offering. He cares. Enough to come. Enough to seek you out. Have you here so that you could hear this message. God wants to be known. If you have felt like he is far off and impossible to find, he desires to be known to the point of speaking in a way that would matter to you. And his kingdom is coming. And it's marvelous. If that's you, I'd encourage you to come and find me in the back or Jimmy and Anne Marie, they're wearing blue shirts, they'll be in the back and just come and talk with us. If anybody needs prayer for anything going on, let's be the body and gather. But for now, let's proclaim the excellencies of him who has taken us from darkness into light. Stand with us if you would.